Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this podcast we talk with Vincent Ayello. Vincent chats about his time flying the F-18A through F-Hornet and Super Hornet, the F-16A and B, Top Gun, his various deployments, and his brand new podcast, the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also visit us at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. So Vincent, how did you become interested in aviation? Well, Mike, at a young age, my stepfather took us to local air shows and we became excited about things that fly and make noise. <laughs> so my two older brothers and I, we used to fly remote control airplanes, and my oldest brother still does. And when I was in high school, my stepdad pulled me aside one day and said, you know, you'll be done with high school soon. Have you thought about what you want to do afterwards? And, you know, like any 15, 16-year-old, I said, not really. Uh, but I can remember that conversation because it was the beginning of my decision to pursue a life in aviation. And my stepdad motivated me to do that. I give him the credit. And I was uh, able to apply for college and a commissioning program through the Navy and was able to work it out. So yeah, it started when I was about seven or eight years old. Brilliant. So can you tell us what year you joined the U.S. Navy? Well, it depends on how you look at it. So I joined the Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC, in 1990. But it was two years later in 1992 that I received my commission into the actual Navy. Okay. So could you tell us, once you joined, what aircraft did you start training on? Well, at the time, the first trainer was the T-34 Mentor. It's a low-wing propeller aircraft. Pilot and uh, co-pilot sit tandem. And I logged about 115 hours in that with basic flying landings, day landings and night landings, aerobatics, and basic radio instrument uh, procedures as well. So can you tell us your first thoughts when you got assigned to the F-18 Hornet? Uh, I was ecstatic. So the first airplane I flew, like I said, was the T-34. Then I flew a basic jet, the T-2 Buckeye. And my last training jet was the TA-4 Skyhawk. And, you know, frankly, I was a little bit blue collar in that squadron. I didn't do particularly well. And thankfully, they had enough F-18 spots at the time that when I went in to receive my assignment and I had my whole family there because we would get our wings that very same day in a ceremony, uh, I had warned my family. I said, you know, I did my best, but I'm not at the top of the class by any stretch. <laughs> so I could end up flying anything, but I'm hoping to get the F-18. And I walked into the commanding officer's office and I can remember him telling me F-18's El Toro which meant the F-18, of course, and also Marine Corps Air Station El Toro in Santa Ana. It's near Disneyland, California. And that was perfect because I had gone to UC Irvine for two of my four years of college. I transferred to UCLA. And so I used to drive, or I should say ride my bicycle over to that base and watch airplanes take off anyway. It was a great source of motivation, especially when I was trying to avoid doing homework. So to be able to go back there as a student, I was just on cloud nine to get the aircraft I wanted in a location I was familiar with. It was it was a great day. I still remember it. I can imagine. So could you talk us through a bit of your, your ground training? What, what did that entail? Uh, in the F-18, when you show up, the first thing they do is give you about a week or two of academic study. You learn everything there is to know about the airplane, the hydraulic and electrical systems, fuel and oil and everything else, and flight control systems. Then you also learn about flying the aircraft 
and then you do what's called computer-based training or CBTs, which are simply, you know, computer-based. You do a lesson, you take a little pop quiz, and you turn the box from red to green, and once they're all green, then you can progress to whatever's next. And generally then you do a series of simulators where you can get in a mock-up and start the aircraft, taxi it out, take it off. Of course, it's not the same. They don't have motion, but the aircraft components themselves in the cockpit are the same. So it's the best they can do. And then one day when you're ready, you brief with an instructor, you jump in the front seat for your first flight, and you go through everything just like you did in the simulator, and you go out and you fly to a working area, as we call it. You do some basic maneuvering. You go to an outline field. You do a few touch and goes, and you come back and you land, and you hope that you don't break anything. But, of course, <laughs> on your first few flights, you have an instructor with you to keep you honest. Of course. So I'm guessing this is the first aircraft you had with Hortas and the glass cockpit. Could you talk us through what it was like transferring to that? Sure. Yeah, the hands-on throttle and stick, as you call it, Hotaz, is a, I don't know if you should call it a technique or just, you know, it's something you have to learn. And what I've always told people as an analogy is it's like playing the piano because every finger can push a different key depending on what you're playing, of course. And same is true in the F-18. You just have to practice just like a pianist and you have to know where the different switches are. So muscle memory and you get to a point where you just know that, okay, my thumb can push this button and it does this or it can push that button and it does that. And in fact, both thumbs have two or three or even maybe four. I'd have to sit and think about it and I don't want to keep your uh, listeners waiting, (laughs) but um, several, I'll just say several different functions and buttons and switches. And then every other finger, I think with the exception Let me think, pinky, yeah, pretty much every finger has a different switch. It can actuate, and each one of them does something different. So you just have to practice, just like a sports player or a musician or really anyone. So going to the actual aircraft, what was it like to actually fly and handle? Oh, it was amazing. I don't know how to compare it to anyone. Maybe if someone has a high-performance sports car, they have a feel for it. Or if you drive a high-performance motorcycle, a sports bike, let's say, you also have a feel for the power and control that's at your fingertips. Uh, But unlike the two dimensions that a car or a motorcycle drives, as you well know, Mike, an airplane flies in three, and it's incredible. Uh, There's no way to really explain it. Uh, Anyone who's flown a regular airplane has a sense of it. But the amazing thing about a fighter jet is, you know, they spend a lot of time teaching basic pilots, hey, you know, if you're going to fly into the mountains and you go into a canyon, you better make sure you have enough room to turn around or there's enough power to climb out. That's never a problem in an F-18. You can go into a canyon and if it walls up on you, you can select afterburner and virtually pull straight up. So it, it is... It's an amazing sense of power and control that if I may generalize for a moment, most men seem to like, and I'm no different. I enjoyed it, and I know a lot of my friends did as well. Brilliant. So when do you start practicing carry landings with the F-18? Day one, believe it or not. Oh, now, wow. not on an actual – well, but not – that's the caveat. Yeah. Not on an actual uh, aircraft carrier, but when you come in for a landing on that very first – we'll call it a FAM-1, familiarization flight one – and the instructor in the back seat, he's already briefed you on, hey, when we come back, we're going to do some landings. And the airfield 
has a painted section of the runway that looks like the carrier landing area, and it has a light off to the left, just like a carrier does. Now, what's different is, of course, that it's not moving, and the winds are never perfectly down the angle, although, to be fair, they aren't always perfectly down the flight deck of a carrier either. But what you do is, every time you come in for a landing, you come in for the overhead, weather permitting, which is simply a descending, slowing, 360-degree turn you do over the runway. And from a beam, the runway pointing the opposite direction for a left 180 degree turn until you roll out with just maybe 15 to 17 seconds left before you land and, you know, about 350 feet of descent left. Uh, you do that whole procedure just like you someday will at the ship. And so that every time you come into land, you are doing the descent procedures. You've put, you put your gear down to the same spot. You put your uh, uh, aircraft in the right configuration with the flaps and you've slowed it to what's called on speed, which simply means just the right landing attitude of the aircraft. And then you come around and you look for the lights. You look for the landing area that's painted on the runway and you fly it all the way down just like you will. And then when you touch down, if it's a touch and go, it's the same as at the ship. You go to full power, you bounce off the ground, you come back around again. Now, what is different at the field is on your last landing, when you land, you actually do pull the throttles to idle, but by then you've done it so many other times and at the ship, you'll be so keyed up, you won't pull the throttles to idle. You go to full power every time, even if the wires do catch you. Wow. So we're all thinking, what was your first trap like on a real carrier in the F-18? Well, let's take it back, Mike, to the A-4, because that is actually the first time I landed on the aircraft carrier. Okay. And terrifying, terrifying might be too strong of a word, but even though we had done, in fact, so going back to that practice landing I just told you about, when you get ready to go to the carrier for your very first time, uh, you do all those landings prior to a segment of about two weeks of just, no kidding, dedicated landing flights where all you do is take off, turn downwind, and just do landing after landing after landing. Now, whereas a normal flight, there's not what's called a landing signal officer out at the runway. On your practice, what we call FCLPs, Field Carrier Landing Practice, the landing signal officer, who's another pilot who has that collateral duty, he will have briefed all the students, and he says, all right, give me 20 minutes and I'll be out there, and then you guys take off. And when you go out there, he grades every single landing, and he can give you real-time feedback or wait until afterwards. And so you do that over and over and over. I must have done 10 FCLP flights wow. and simulators. So that same simulator we used at the beginning, you go back, they'll set it up to pretend you're at the carrier, and you'll do the landings plus all the communications and everything else. And then when they think you're ready, they'll send you out to the carrier, generally from Meridian, Mississippi, where I was based. You have to go to one of the coasts, of course. In my case, I went out to San Diego. And they brief you. One of the lead instructors will fly you out there. Uh, you'll all break and take your interval off each other. And you'll, make, you'll be making your way downwind, just like you did at the field, except instead of looking at a runway, you're looking at a ship. Mm -hmm. And you start getting nervous. <laughs> and by the, time, by the time you come around, you've in a sense, forgotten everything because you're so nervous, but you haven't because you've built that into that muscle memory. And in my case, it was a little bit harrowing. My first time around, 
I, uh, let's see if I get this straight. It was either the first or second time. I know I took two tries before I, you know, touched down the third time. The first time I think I, uh, was too close to the guy in front of me. And so they had to wave me off. The second time I missed the whole ship. I had just turned too wide and couldn't salvage it. <laughs> and the third time I was able to touch down. And at the time we had our arresting hooks up. So my very first landing was a touch and go. But man, you you know you touch down and bam, it's a quick jolt. You go to full power like you always do, and then before you know it, you're right back airborne, and you're only 60 feet off the water, so you wow. have to hurry up and get your wits yeah. about you and go back up. And then we did that, I believe, two times, and then we put the hook down. And when you that wire grabs you and it pulls you to a stop in only a few hundred feet, uh, you go f- flying forward in your straps, and it really pulls you to a halt. And then you just sit there wide-eyed, like, what just happened? And of course. <laughs> You know, if you don't respond right away, they'll tell you on the radio, okay, we got you. Bring your throttle back. Watch for the yellow shirt. Who's the guy on the deck who directs you? So it's no matter how much you train for it, that first one is something you'll always remember. And I certainly do. It's been 23 years and I still remember it like it was yesterday. So going on to more of a technical side, what would you say the strengths and weaknesses of the F-18 were? I would say a strength is that it is a multi-mission aircraft and it does a, a myriad of missions very well. I would say a weakness is that it doesn't have at least the regular Hornet. It doesn't have the uh, longest and best capability for radar. It also has fairly short legs. And by that, I mean the ability to have endurance or range, uh, especially when it's carrying a lot of bombs or missiles. Um, and that's part of the reason they built the Super Hornet was to extend that. And in fact, the Super Hornet is quite a bit, quite a bit more fuel than the uh, regular Hornet. Um, it, it's not particularly fast, but it, you know, it, it's a good dogfighting aircraft because it has superior flight controls that allow it to uh, maneuver very well at slow speeds. But once it gets slow, it is difficult to get speed back on the aircraft. So just a few years ago, on my penultimate tour in the Navy, I had a chance to fly the F-16. And it although in some ways is very similar to an F-18, if you end up slow in a dogfight in the F-16, that aircraft with that one engine and its small airframe could get uh, airspeed and energy back very quickly. So that was one thing the F-18 pilots had to be taught was all hope is not lost if you end up very close to the deck, as we call it, which is the simulated ground at slow speed. If you can just relax the pole on the stick for a few seconds, a lot of times you can get airspeed back very quickly. So the F-18 is a great aircraft, has some strengths, has a few weaknesses, but I think it has served the Navy and Marine Corps and our fellow countries, Australia and Canada, to name just a few, uh, very well. So, Vincent, can you talk us through your first operational assignment? I think it was with VFA-86. It was. So, from El Toro, where I did my training, then assigned to the VFA-86 Sidewinders. At the time, it was at Naval Air Station Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, That Cecil Airfield has now closed. But the... uh, I showed up, and of course, you know, if you've ever seen movies or read any books about brand new pilots, you know, they treat them a little rough, but not too bad. Uh, there's no hazing or anything. Uh, but, you know, the, the the advice I received, and I hope I did it, was keep your mouth shut for a while. Uh, don't <laughs> pretend like you know everything. Learn all that you can. Uh, be willing to help. Have a good attitude. Take any assignment, whatever it is, with a smile on your face and the willingness to do it. Because, as you know, Mike, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Absolutely. So you show up. Yep, you show up. 
They, they give you a menial job perhaps to uh, do on the ground when you're not flying. But for the most part, you're there to learn as much about the fleet as you possibly can, including carrier operations. Because you may have done CQ, carrier qualification, but you have not operated at a carrier. So depending on when you show up to the squadron, you generally will have hopefully a month or two to learn everything before you go out on a deployment. But in some cases, some people show up and go straight to deployment and join their squadrons that way. But it is a very steep learning curve, as I like to say. And your job is to learn as much as you can. And once you've been there for a year or two, then you can turn around and start helping the next new guy or gal who shows up to the squadron to learn how it works in the fleet. So what was your role on Southern Watch on this tour? Yeah, so at VFA 86, I deployed twice to the Arabian Gulf, and first time was on George Washington. The second time was on the aircraft carrier John F. Kennedy. And our role, as I like to make the analogy, was like a police officer uh, walking the beat. So he's got his nightstick, maybe he's got his sidearm. Uh, he's not necessarily looking for trouble, but if there is trouble, then he's going to restore law and order. So at that time, this was the late 1990s, our mission was to fly over southern Iraq, where the coalition that was monitoring the uh, Iraq since the desert storm had said, hey, look, we don't want you uh, picking on some of the minority groups in your country, so you're not allowed to fly south of this parallel or north of that parallel because we were Southern Watch. We were flying on the southern part of that. And so we were just there waiting to see if anything happened. If they tried to attack their own people or if they tried to attack us, we were ready. Now, going back to a comment I made earlier about the F-18, uh, remember I said it could not carry a whole lot of weapons and a whole lot of fuel. And in fact, another limitation was that if we carried a lot of bombs, well, then when you came back to land on the carrier, because you have to be at a certain weight or less, you either had to have fewer bombs or fewer fuel. And so if you're the cop walking the beat and you haven't shot any of your bullets that day, and let's face it, most days cops hope they don't and it was same for us if you carry a bunch of bombs but you don't drop them you might have to jettison them in the ocean and we tried not to do that so for the most part we would only carry maybe one bomb and a few missiles just to make sure that we could come back and land with enough fuel to give ourselves some options in case we did not land the first time but yes uh, we, we would fly over iraq and just monitor the situation and make sure that uh, they were doing what they were required to do based on the uh not the treaty, but I'm not sure what to call it. But, you know, after Desert Storm wrapped up, there were some, some uh, restrictions on what they could and could not do. I'm sure you probably did some night flying. And, I mean, I've seen some videos. It looks terrifying. So, Vincent, could you tell us what it was like flying it on and off a ship at night? You bet. You know, it's funny, Mike. I told you earlier I'll always remember my very first day landing. Truth is, I do not remember my first night landing. Now, that is not to say... It wasn't terrifying because it still was until the end, frankly. Um, not not on the well moonlit nights, you know, when you could see the ship. Uh, you get used to that, sort of. But at the beginning, it's it's terrifying because the margin for error is very small. And, you know, frankly, except for the few exceptions in the movie, of course, loves to focus on the, the ones who have no problem with their egos. Uh, the rest of us do wonder are, am I good enough? Uh, is this something I can do and do well enough to, you know, keep doing it because I don't want to get fired or grounded, uh, but also not die, certainly, uh, because that does happen, and, and not break the airplane and a hundred other concerns that you have when you're young and you're new. I will tell you, in that very first squadron I was in, I mentioned earlier, VFA 86, um, our first at-sea period, 
our executive officer, who is now younger than I am and was about the age I was when I got out. So he had a lot of experience in several landings, including several at night, probably in the hundreds. He landed one night and he walked into the ready room and he put his bag and his helmet on his little ready room chair that we have there. And he did this shiver like a pea shiver. And he said, whew, he said, man, it's dark out there. And Mike, I'll tell you, I never forgot that because I looked at him and in that moment I thought, oh, crap, <laughs> this is never going to get easier. <laughs> I mean, if, if here is a commander who is the number two in the squadron with close to 20 years of service, he probably had 2,500 flight hours, maybe six or 700 landings or more, several hundred at night. And he was shivering because it was dark. There's no hope. <laughs> so, uh, um, and indeed, you know, I, I thankfully, you know, I, I won't say I'd never had any dramatic landings. I had to go see the, uh, the tower supervisor once or twice for a couple landings. And I've had some landing signal officers talk to me. I was, again, I was, I was very average. Uh, but, you know, you, you do get better. And you do grow some confidence. Some pilots just have that natural ability, and good for them. It wasn't me, and it's not most of us. But you, you do you do grow the skill, and you develop the confidence to be able to say, I can do this. And then what happens? Then you go someplace like off the coast of Australia in 2005, where the ship is moving plus 20 feet and minus 20 feet from normal. And it's a real bear to get aboard. And boy, that shakes the foundation. But with some effort, and the landing signal officers who you want to thank up and down, uh, they'll bring everybody aboard. And for the most part, they do it, and, and we do land safely, it's which, which is why you never hear about it on the news, frankly. Of course. Well, Vincent, you can't have been that average because in 2000, you got sent to Top Gun. Could you tell us about how you how this came about? <laughs> Yeah, well, okay. I, you know, modesty is, is one of my traits, I hope. Uh, I worked real hard at VFA 86, and I got better as I went along tactically and landing-wise. And we had a Top Gun graduate come to our squadron, as they all do. You, each squadron gets a recent graduate who it was our training officer. And this gentleman is still a friend of mine to this day. And he asked me what I planned to do after the squadron, and I thought – because, you know, you rotate through every couple of years. And I thought, well, I don't know. There's different things out there that interest me. And I said, I don't know, maybe Top Gun, but I don't know if they would have me. And he said, well, if you're interested, we could work together. And I just came from there. I could talk to them and we could take a look at it. I said, sure, let's go for it. I, you know, whatever the hardest thing is out there, Mike, I go for it. I don't always get it. Why don't not? always win. But I try. You bet. And so uh, just like when my stepdad asked me in my high school, hey, why don't you go for it? Okay, let's do it. And so he put in a good word for me. I put in my application. And the way they select instructors is they all get together at staff meetings. And we just touched on this briefly uh, on the most recent Fighter Pilot podcast episode on Top Gun, the school versus Top Gun, the movie. And uh, they looked at my credentials and my recommendation. And they said, all right, we'll take a chance on this guy. So I went to the class and, again, did pretty average by my standard, but, you know, got through and stayed at Top Gun and had a very rewarding tour. Probably still the high water mark of my career, frankly. I can imagine. But could you tell us what sort of flying would you conduct as a student there? As a student, you go through a syllabus that, again, is a little bit of a crawl, walk, run. But instead of, let's say, grade school, now you're in graduate school. 
So they expect you to have all the basic information well ingrained in your head at that point. They don't expect you to be perfect in the airplane, but what they expect, Mike, is a good attitude and a willingness to learn because they can fix stick and throttle skills. What they can't fix is an attitude, at least not very easily. So if you made it to that point and you have an attitude, that's going to be a, a deal breaker. And I think that's what helped me get in the door. Uh, so you start with some basic fighter maneuvers, dogfighting, one versus one, and then you graduate to a two versus one. So there's two good guys against one bad guy, and you work on handing off and keeping track of each other. And then you do some air-to-surface basic now I say basic, but you know it, it's it's graduate level. But you're you're you know kind of doing it at a basic level at first. Uh, then you do some close air support, which is simulating you know timed and close proximity air to surface with troops on the ground. Then you do some two versus two and two versus more in air to air. And then the biggest exercise you do at Top Gun is a four ship or division versus as many as possibly 12 adversary aircraft. And that's air to air and air to surface. You might have to fight your way in, drop some bombs and fight your way out. And then there's one flight also that's a lot of fun at Top Gun. It's called the Grad 1v1. It is where everybody shows up. It's it's almost the last of the wild, wild west in the Navy, frankly. Uh, you show up at this really fun brief that takes about an hour. Everybody gets an envelope. You open your envelope. It has a point in space in a certain area. It has a time, it has a frequency, and an altitude. And what you do is you take off in time, you show up there, and you fight whoever shows up. And wow. boy, is that a lot of That's fun. Brilliant. The, oh, it's great. Over the times that I've done it, I've met an F-16. When I, so all these times I was in an F-18. I met an F-16, an F-5, a T-45, a GR-1 Tornado, and I might be missing one or two. Uh, but it's just, it's always a lot of fun. Uh, they bring F-15s in, they bring all kinds of different aircraft in and it's just a fun day. They have a barbecue at the end of the day and it's really good training because you don't know what you're going to meet. You know, when you brief with an instructor and he's in his F-18 and you're in yours, you know how that jet flies. But when you show up at a merge at the right time, at the right altitude and you look and say, what is that? You got to decide in a split second how to fight it, and it's a lot of fun. Briefly talk us through a briefing and debriefing because I can imagine it's very complicated and very stressful. Sure. Let's start with a BFM mission, basic fighter maneuvers, also called ACM, air combat maneuvers, or dogfighting. Those are all basically the same thing. Uh, in your very first BFM flight, you will give an instructor a brief, and they're looking for certain key things for you to cover that demonstrate that you understand the capabilities of your aircraft and the standard threat that they might use as your baseline. And so what they do is they say, okay, let's say you're starting in this position. Well, we know from the performance of our aircraft and the performance of the adversary that we can do certain maneuvers that will minimize their advantages and maximize ours and minimize our disadvantages and maximize theirs. Did I get that right? I think I did. Uh, and so what you do is you, 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 sh you demonstrate in about an hour to an hour and five to 10 minutes time to the instructor that you understand all those concepts and that you can instruct those or uh, demonstrate those or convey those. Because when you walk out of Top Gun at the end of the 12, 14 weeks, however long the course is, and it varies uh, depending on what the syllabus has changed, you know, at, at times, um, you get that patch. You are an instructor. You are a teacher. And so they want to make sure you don't just know it, but that you can convey it to students. So you're essentially being evaluated 
on your knowledge, but also your ability to convey it. And so if there's any slip-ups in any of that, I mean, if you've got it mostly, but it needs a little polishing, that's one thing. If you just don't get it, well, then you've really not done your homework to prepare to go there because generally what you'll do before you even show up is find other former Top Gun instructors and say, hey, can you listen to this and help me out because I want to get ready to go and I don't want to <laughs> shine my rear end you know, on day one. So you brief it and generally then about 45 minutes to an hour before you're scheduled to take off, you go and get all your tape recorder information, your tapes, you know, your, your different computer cards. You check the lineup for what aircraft you're in. You walk out, you start up, you go out, you fly the mission, you try to execute what you just briefed. It doesn't always happen. And then when you come back, you spin your tapes real quick to review what you saw. They have video and audio of what you just flew. And then you come back. And again, the student has to tell the instructor, okay, here's what we went out and did. Here's what we did well. Here's what we did poorly. Here's what I did poorly. This is me imagining to be the student. And frankly, Mike, if you were my instructor and I think that you did something wrong, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and gloss over it. I'm going to say, and I think you did this wrong and maybe you could have done it this way or done that. And that is a mark of professionalism, not only on the student to be able to do that because he might go out and brief far soon, far senior or superior officers later, but Hey, you know what? If you wear that patch, there's credibility of, look, you either flew as my wingman that day, you either flew it right or you didn't. And if you didn't, I'm going to tell you about it. And the instructor, by God, he, he's going to acknowledge that if he made a mistake, sure. Now, if he didn't, he might correct the student on why, in fact, he did what he did. But that generally doesn't happen. Even as a Top Gun instructor, mistakes are made and you acknowledge them and you figure out what you could done could have done better and you leave that uh, debrief with a sense of here's what we could go do better next time. And then you're not done yet. Then it's the instructor's turn. He starts all the way at the beginning. He tells you what you did well and poorly in your brief, in the execution, and in the debrief. And then at that point, you're done. So that 45-minute flight may take six hours from start to finish, not counting wow. your own preparation. Wow, that must have been a long day. <laughs> but then, Vincent, you were lucky enough to come back as an instructor. How did you actually get invited to uh, be in this role? Yeah, it's unlike the movie. Uh, you, you are selected to be an instructor before you even go. So okay. when that training officer, a friend of mine, Jeff, that I mentioned earlier, he showed up and said, what would you like to do? And I thought, I'd like to be an instructor. So when they select you to attend, they are selecting you with the knowledge of where you will go afterwards. And it takes some coordination between the Top Gun instructor cadre and the Navy's personnel command to make sure that the people that they can assign can, in fact, go where they're selected to go. So I was selected to stay there as an instructor. So what aircraft would you fly in this role? As a student, you fly the airplane you came from the fleet in. So I, I went there and flew the, super, the Hornet, uh, the, the regular FAA-18A through D Hornet. And then once you stay on the staff, they do have Super Hornets there, and you can get qualified in both. And in fact, you can get qualified in three aircraft because they also have F-16s that they use only for adversary or opposition forces. So you can fly any one of three or maybe all three different aircraft in one day, but you only instruct in the fleet representative aircraft. And that would be the FA-18A through F, Hornet and Super Hornet. And then after that, you went to fly with VFA-94 in support of Iraqi Freedom. Could you tell us about this? Sure. Actually, I went to VFA-97 first. That okay. was my training. Yep. Same air wing though. 
the Warhawks, I was the training officer. And so I had now the chance to pay it back to other young lieutenants and uh, encourage them to be as good as they could at tactics and also to consider a career, if you will, in Top Gun or at least a tour there. And the other thing that I had an opportunity to do was to uh, use my expertise not only in my own squadron but in the other squadrons of the air wing and do what we call chalk talks where you – come in the ready room and all the pilots are there and you grab some dry erase markers and you use their board to talk about a tactic of the day and it helps to make them better and helps you to, you know, process the information that you know and share it with other people. Even the areas that you're not a subject matter expert on, uh, you've, you've lived it for three years at Top Gun that you know it pretty well and you can still uh, increase the understanding of all the pilots in those squadrons. So that's a great tour. And we did deploy on Nimitz in support of OIF. Uh, we we actually got to Iraq right after the statue of Saddam Hussein fell, if you've seen that news footage. Uh, there were four four carriers there, I want to say, during the actual most of the shooting. And then they all went home, and, and we showed up to kind of clean up and keep an eye on things. And we ended up staying. That was an eight-month deployment. Uh, my middle child gestated the entire time I was gone uh, and was born not long after I returned. And we flew very similar to the Operation Southern Watch that we talked about earlier, Mike, mm -hmm. uh, except this time we went north of the boundary that they were not supposed to go south of. And we did, never did go north of them, uh, of it then. But this time we were going north and supporting the troops on the ground as far north as Baghdad and farther. So did you actually fly any combat missions yourself? Yes, I did. Um you know, you call it combat. There's also the name contingency. Okay. Uh, the Operation Southern Watch uh, deployments, which I did two of, those were contingency because you never quite knew what was going to happen. Uh, and in 2003 and again in 2005 when we went to the Arabian Gulf for Operation Iraqi Freedom, I never did fly over Afghanistan. Uh, you, you could make an argument that those were combat missions, uh, but truth is I did, never dropped any bombs in either of those deployments. I did drop one in 1999 uh, when Southern Watch was starting to heat up. and you know, but, but we were there, we were ready, and it's actually, I think, a good thing if you don't drop your bombs in a sense because yeah. it meant that it, they weren't needed. And if they're not needed, that means the troops on the ground are not in harm's way because we didn't just go in and start bombing things willy-nilly. You know, for most of that conflict, it was supporting those troops on the ground. And if they needed our bombs, then, hey, we were there ready to go. Um, but the biggest thing I did between 03 and 05, apart from being there, was a high-speed flyby of some folks on the ground that the crowd was getting a little close and they didn't want to use lethal measures, but they wanted me to let them know we were there and serious. And so I had a chance to fly up a dirty, dusty road at about, oh, we'll call it 200 feet, but pretty fast, pretty loud. And according to the fellow I was talking to on the radio, it sounds like it did the trick. Yeah, so again, uh, VFA-97 deployed on Nimitz in 2003, and VFA-94 deployed on Nimitz in 2005. Same air wing, I just changed t-shirt colors under oh, my right. flight suit and <laughs> moved from one to the other. And the role was the same. I was now, instead of a training officer, I was the department head, which is middle management. It's the lieutenant commander, or 04 ranks. There's about four of them in a single seat squadron. Uh, so you'll have, you know, two leaders at the top, number one and number two. You'll have four in the middle management and generally about 10 of the young lieutenants. So you're making your way up now. And as a department head, you are either in the safety department, as we just talked about, and for the most part, you're the whole department with one helper. Uh, or you could be in administration 
operations or maintenance. So you run one of those departments and you answer directly to the leadership for the squadron. And you act as a go-between to try to shield the young officers from, uh, in some cases, the wrath of the uh, <laughs> higher rankers if, they, if they're mad about something. You try to stand in the gap between the two, up and down. But you were assigned to NEF Atsugi in Japan. And, yeah. and so can you tell us how this role happened? Sure, uh, but we're skipping one. After VFA 94, I was assigned to the Strike Fighter Weapons School Pacific, which is essentially like a satellite school of Top Gun. But whereas Top Gun is off in the desert, away from the fleet squadrons, each fleet squadron location on the east and west coast of the United States has a weapons school. It's a satellite of Top Gun graduates there on location to help with day-to-day training and check rides. And I was the operations officer there helping in a capacity similar to what I used to do up at Top Gun. So that was about three years. And then from there, I went to Naval Air was it NAF, I believe, Naval Air Facility at Sugi, about 10 miles or, you know, 10-minute train ride west of Yokohama near Tokyo, Japan. And I was with the Ford Deployed Air Wing 5, which has now moved to Iwakuni on a different part of the islands of Japan. And I was the operations officer for the whole air wing, uh, meaning I was a part of the staff that supervised or oversaw all the different squadrons that make up an air wing. Uh, But because I was still an active pilot, a couple squadrons were kind enough to fly me with them. So I was still flying, still on and off the carrier, in this case, George Washington again. So it came full circle back to the ship I started on and uh, was able to do that job in uh, Japan from 2009 to 2010 and had a lot of fun. And my family moved over there with me. We really loved it. Our young boys at the time, uh, believe it or not, got a lot of modeling jobs. So uh, they were always on the lookout for American-looking kids. And so they did commercials and different magazine shoots and stuff. And uh, my wife enjoyed that, and she taught a little English to some of the locals. So we really look back fondly on that tour. Oh, superstars over there then. (laughs) (laughs) So what aircraft were actually based over there? At the time, we had regular Hornets, Super Hornets, Prowlers, uh, E-2, and helicopters. The Prowlers have since retired, and in fact, so have the regular Hornets. I believe now Air Wing 5 is all Super Hornets. That's the E's and F's. And then the Growler, which is the E-18G, and still the E-2 and the helicopters. And let me add one more because my friends always tease me for forgetting all the support players and the C2 Greyhound. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I heard that so, on your last podcast. Uh, my props to those guys. I yeah. do like them. I just sometimes forget. Uh, yeah. Call me a snooty <laughs> fighter pilot. Um, but your question was, yeah, I've already forgotten. So ask me that question again, Mike. Uh, so what sort of flying would you conduct over there? Sure. Uh, when we were based in Atsugi, we would do training in the airspace just south of Tokyo off the coast there. Uh, we could do air-to-air training. There was not a lot of good air-to-surface ranges, but we could occasionally do some practice bombing at different ranges. And for the most part, we would get aboard the ship uh, and do our training out there. Or uh, we could fly down to, uh, believe it or not, Iwo Jima, which has been renamed Iwo To. Uh, we use that airfield that still exists from World War II for our field carrier landing practices that we talked about before. Atsugi is surrounded with dense, dense populations, and it only has one runway. So they didn't like us to do a lot of touch-and-go landings there because it just makes too much noise for the locals and the neighbors. Uh, it's part of the reason they've since moved to Iwakuni. So we would go down at that time to Iwo To and do our field carrier landing practice and stay there for a couple of days and tour the island. And that was an amazing opportunity, a lot of history on that island. 
So you must enjoy your time over there then. Very much so. We had a chance to go up to the ice festival in Sapporo. Uh, we didn't get to go to Nagano and ski, unfortunately. Would have loved to have done that. But we toured all around Tokyo, went down to Kyoto and Hiroshima, and uh, really got to see Japan. And, it, you know, it's really refreshing. I don't know that much about the UK, Mike, but, you know, America is a very litigious society. And so just to go to Japan where it's not very litigious and, you know, there's a lot of um, – Gosh, I don't even know how to put it. I, I struggle with this every time. It's just it's different than the U.S. Yeah. I'm not saying the U.S. is bad. It was just refreshing to be somewhere different. Gotcha. And you know, it, it, it was, yeah, it was just really fun. We enjoyed it. Uh, but most people, you know, we only stayed two calendar years. Most people, when they stay the full three years, they say, mm, yeah, it was great, but I'm ready to come home. Uh, for us, we still enjoyed it. But, yeah, probably another six months and we might have said the same. Well, that's certainly on my bucket list. But, uh, yeah, Vincent, could you tell us what happened in 2010? Uh, in 2010, I then moved to the Third Fleet headquarters here in uh, Point Loma, San Diego. And I was on a numbered staff. It was my only time in almost 24 and a half years by the time I retired that I ever had to have a job that I was not flying. And frankly, Mike, I hated it. <laughs> But then, this has fascinated me. In 2013, you served as the program manager for the F-16 for the advisor, um, adversary fleet and the Navy. How did this come about? So while I was at my third fleet job, after I re returned from Afghanistan and finished my MBA, I was able to get my medical qualification back. And I had already started priming the pump with some friends in high places. And I said, hey, if I can fly again, before I retire, can I go back to Fallon, which is where Top Gun is based? Uh, I didn't go to the Top Gun staff again, but I went to the parent organization of Top Gun. Uh, could I go back up there for one final tour and, and go out, you know, kicking and screaming, flying? And so I showed up. They were uh, gracious enough to take me. I showed up, and I was the operations officer for a little bit, and then I was able to be in charge of the Navy's F-16 adversary fleet, as you rightfully mentioned. Uh, we have 14 F-16s. 10, A's, uh, 10 single seat A's and four two seat B's. And we used them all right there in Fallon for adversaries. And I was in charge of everything about it. Some of the maintenance, uh, the pilot training, the record keeping, the upgrades that the aircraft would require. And it was a really fun job because I went from never having flown it to learning how to fly it, to learning how to manage the program, to then instructing in it before I left. And I left with only 170 total flight hours. But by then, you have a pretty good sense for flying. You just have to learn the different HOTAS, the different nuances of flying that airplane. For example, the lack of spare engine. Uh, so if you lose your one engine, how to get where you want to go or restart it. And so I, I really enjoyed that tour and made some good friendships. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to say I flew that. And again, drawing the parallel to Japan, you know, I always loved the F-18 like I always loved the United States. But flying the F-16 was interesting because it was new, just like going to Japan. And, you know, after a while, I, I don't know, I probably would still enjoy flying it if I had the opportunity. Uh, but you always you always stick with your first love, right? So uh, I did enjoy the F-16. And then um, you haven't asked yet, but I'll just jump on it anyway. Uh, I was ready to retire out of there. Truthfully, I had no idea what I wanted to do next. Nothing else gripped me quite like being a fighter pilot did in high school. And so I ended up taking – one more tour after what I thought I would take. And uh, instead of retiring in 2015, I transferred one more time. Can you compare the F-16 to the F-18? Which did you enjoy more? 
when I first started flying it, I will say I enjoyed the F-16 more because it was new. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you, you sit reclined at about a 30-degree angle back, which the F-18 was not able to incorporate because you need to sit up enough to be able to see when you're landing on the carrier. And it's a side stick controller instead of center stick between your legs. It has much more power, as we discussed earlier, and it can go faster. It can add power better. But the slow speed capabilities are not as good, and it dogfights a little differently. So you have to learn some different techniques than you used to use in the F-18. So I really enjoyed it because it was just new. It's like getting a new car, maybe, or going to a new place. Uh, you know, I, I'm tempted to draw a parallel between, you know, if you divorce and you start dating again. I don't know. I'm not divorced, so maybe <laughs> I better just walk away from that. Um, but for those who are out there, they might understand, you know, the new yep. smell, the new the new uh, personality. Um, if my wife is listening to this, uh, honey, I love you. I have no intent to leave you. Uh, <laughs> I expect her to actually walk in any second. So yeah, she does. Uh, yeah, so she, she knows my, uh, my silliness. But anyway, uh, so it, it was just new and smelled different and handled different. So I think my the listeners can get the idea and um i I did enjoy it um i think the question was uh, right what what uh, what was different about it Mm -hmm. okay so yeah how it handled how it flew and what you need to think about if you ever have an engine problem because you'll have only one Mm -hmm. i might just cut this out because i want this just for me like did you ever fly the f16 against the super hornet i did yeah what came out on uh, on top uh, you know, it, it depends on the pilots in each of them, because okay. if you can force the Super Hornet from an F-16's perspective to fight a certain way, then you have the advantage, because once he gets bled down and slow, you can go up with that excessive thrust of weight, and once you do that, you're in good shape. But it's kind of moot anyway, Mike, because if he has a helmet-mounted sight and an AIM-9X, as long as he can look at you, you're he can shoot you. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit academic. Uh, there are advantages to either one. If the F-18 can get you, you know, in a position where he can continue to point at you uh, and, and, you know, have that slow speed ability, then it really forces you to get off your game in the F-16. So it's a little bit of cat and mouse. You you put the best F-16 pilot and the best F-18 pilot against each other. It's going to be tough. But, you know, you put one who's a little better than the other in either airplane and that airplane will probably win. So in 2015, you actually went back to the Hornet, didn't you, Vincent? Well, I flew the Hornet in Fallon besides the F-16. So like we talked about earlier, I did have all three qualifications. And yes, as I intimated earlier, I wasn't ready to retire simply because I didn't want to grow up. I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. So my wife wanted to come back to San Diego for some reason. She and the kids didn't think too much of moving from San Diego up to the desert east of Reno. Can't understand why. (laughs) So once I realized we would be moving down to San Diego, where we are now, and it is a bit expensive, I thought, well, I need to be able to put food on the table. And so my detailer, which is the person at the personnel command who manages jobs and people, he said, well, I have a job down there at a repair facility depot where they are looking for officers to do some of the work, but also pilots, two for one here that you can fly the airplane after it's repaired and then deliver them back to the squadrons on the different bases around the U.S. And I'd always heard of that job, and it sounded kind of fun. So I thought, yeah, why not? So I took one more job and did that for a couple of years and ended up retiring instead in 2017. So how was this job different from flying Hornets operationally? Well, 
your a better question, Mike, might be how was it the same? And the only way it was the same was that it was an F-18. Okay, right, fair enough. <laughs> uh, almost always flew in the daytime, never flew with a wingman. All my flights were post-maintenance check flights and deliveries. So the airplane comes out from extensive maintenance, in some cases years in the making. Mike, I flew one F-18 that had not flown in eight years. I was the first oh, flight. And yeah, a little trepidation, but uh, they do a good job. So it, it wasn't perfectly fixed, of course. There were a few bugs, but we worked them out. But it was nothing like flying in the fleet. All we did were those post-maintenance checks where you have a checklist on your lap and you just go through step after step. Okay, I have to check the engines. I have to check the flight controls. I have to check the oxygen, the pressurization, everything. You put it through its paces. And then, you you know, if it's flying well, then you pull some Gs and do a few other fun things. And you can go down and look at sailboats, you know, if you're off the coast, which is where we normally were. And then a couple more flights to make sure it's good. And then we would deliver the aircraft to as close as Miramar, only 10 miles away, uh, or as far as Norfolk, Virginia, 2,200 miles away. And that ended up being good training for me for my follow-on career after the Navy as an airline pilot uh, because we would fly them, make stops along the way, and you'd show up at the squadron and generally they were happy to see you because who doesn't like a new airplane, new to them, to show up on the line? And then we would put our flight gear in a bag and put it on a one-way flight home on whatever airline and, and go back and do it all again. So before we wrap up, Vincent, did you actually fly, well, you, you flew all models. Which was your favorite model? I would say my favorite model would be an FA-18C, a higher lot with the bigger engines and the newer radar. Uh, they were as good as performing as an F-18 is going to be with a better radar, you've got better capability. And with those engines, of course, you know, again, the better performance. Mm -hmm. Plus, some of the displays were slightly different. The uh, moving map, as we call it, uh, for the, your situational awareness was better in the later lot jets. Um, so, yeah, I would say if, if I could wave a magic wand and someone would, you know, let me fly an airplane or have an airplane, maybe a lot 18 you know, F-18C would probably be the uh, the cream of the crop for me. Not to take away anything from the Super Hornet, great aircraft, uh, but I just flew it later in life, so my first love is still that regular Hornet. Totally understandable. So how many hours did you get on F-18 and also F-16? Uh, 175 hours in F-16, and I ended up F-18s with about 3,300. So overall, did you enjoy your time with the Navy? Absolutely. No question, no regrets, yes. So, Vincent, you also have a brand new and brilliant podcast called the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Can you talk us how this came about? Sure. Uh, a couple of years ago when I was working at Third Fleet here in San Diego, I either had to drive about 25, 30 minutes or ride my bicycle, which I did most days, uh, about 45 minutes, and got tired of listening to music, so discovered podcasts and found one that I liked on muscle cars and reached out to the host, made friends with him. We've become friends ever since. He actually came out to my Navy retirement in 2016. And we got to talking about podcasts in general. And I realized, you know, all through my career, I always met people who were fascinated with fighter pilots and fighter jets and just everything about what we do. And frankly, it was really humbling to just have that kind of accolade for, for what we do. And some people I think could let it go to their heads. I hope I didn't. Uh, but as I was getting ready to leave the Navy, I started thinking, you know, there could be 
a marriage here of demand and opportunity because I, I don't mind. I mean, I don't know what people think of my voice, but uh, I, I don't mind sharing with, with people. And, and I, I like the idea of, of serving in a way. And so I thought, well, let me look into this. So while I was on active duty, I spoke with a lawyer friend and she said, eh, if you do it while you're on active duty, the Navy will have to approve every episode. So I thought, all right, I'll put it on the shelf for a little while. And when I retired, I picked it back up and really started looking hard at doing it because I just, I wanted to find the people out there who just think it's interesting and maybe they have a boring commute like I do and they just want to listen to it. And lo and behold, I released the podcast January 1st and it's been finding those people and they've been finding me. And the second group I'm looking for too are me 30 years ago. Those people in high school or college who knew or know what they want to do like I knew. And in fact, just this morning, Mike, I received an email from a midshipman who is a ROTC, you know, uh, candidate or student at Auburn University here in the United States who said, Hey, I want to go to flight school. I love the podcast. Thank you very much. So, you know, I, I love getting feedback like that because, you know, this isn't about making money. If money comes some, sometime down the road, I haven't done any advertising or anything yet, promotions. Uh, if it comes, great, but it's not about that. It's about sharing this passion, having a hobby, which let's face it, it's less time, you know, surfing the web and watching TV anyway. So this actually is a benefit to me. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm heartened by the response it's gotten and I, I like the fact that people like it. And so that's going to keep me going. So how often do you release the episodes then? Uh, right now I'm doing three episodes a month and just to keep it somewhat consistent, I do the first, the 11th and the 21st because every month has one of the, all of those. And do you have a theme to each um, episode? Well, I have subjects that I'm starting to work through. And <clears throat> for the time being, what I do is I look for friends to become guests on the show. So it's not just me talking. And they come on board to talk about that particular subject. So, for example, episode one, it was, what is a fighter pilot? Episode two was call signs, those silly nicknames we use instead of our real names, right? Episode three was the flight gear that we wear. Four was refueling. See, now I'm putting myself on the spot. No, four was ejection seats, how they work. And my guest for that one had actually ridden one, saved his life. Mm -hmm. uh, episode five was refueling. Six was pulling G's. And seven just came out, and it is on Top Gun. And episode eight, I've got a couple ideas. Not sure which one it'll be yet. But I have a whole list, Mike, of ideas that I've brainstormed. And I think I've got at least a year's worth of material that I can cover. And the people that are listening, the audience has even suggested some things. Some of them want to hear about the water survival training or the just flight training in general. So I've taken on board some of those suggestions as well. And we'll see. The commanding officer of the Blue Angels right now is an old friend of mine. So if his schedule will permit, if we can even grab him for 30 minutes after a show, maybe I'll see if he'll come aboard. And if not, I know the former CO and a, and a few other guys that used to be Blue Angels. Um, and I also want to look for people who have flown with more than one service. So maybe either Brits who have come over here or guys that have gone over and flown with different squadrons in Europe or even Air Force and Navy exchange pilots to give us an idea of how the services differ. So I, I want to put out the information that I think 
my listeners will find interesting. And it's an interesting balance for me because I try not to be too anecdotal, but I try not to be too specific either. So I try to make it what I think they would like. And with my guests, I enjoy playing the person who doesn't know, uh, not to say that my listener is uninformed, but I like to just be able to start with something basic like episode one. Well, what is a fighter pilot? And then, you know, kind of play, not devil's advocate, but try to get my guest to really talk about some of those basics that people just find interesting. I had a question on yesterday's show about how the heating and air conditioning works and another one on how do you move the rudder pedals? So people eat it up and I'm, I'm happy to share it because that stuff's fairly easy. I don't have to dig real deep in the recesses here to get some of the more technical things that I once knew. Uh, so I, I enjoy doing it. On that note, where, where can we find you online? Sure. It is on iTunes and Stitcher and on our website, which is fighterpilotpodcast.com. Uh, we also have social media platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and I might be forgetting Twitter. Uh, there it is. And so, yeah, we're on all of those. Pick yours or pick them all and come let us know what you think. You know, I really, Mike, I, I really cherish the feedback people give me too, in, including the constructive criticism. In fact, people have told me to lighten up on myself because that's just what we do. And I've tried to do that. Uh, but I do like to hear it from people because then I know where I can focus my effort because I strive for perfection. I'm a far, long ways from it, but I, I do strive for it. And so if people have ideas, suggestions, recommendations, whatever, I, I, I enjoy hearing them. Uh, and I just want to go back one, one second, if I could, to also the topics. I appreciate that you said you like the format. There may come a time, though, where my guest is the topic. Uh, for example, I have a gentleman here where I live on the island uh, here of Coronado that uh, is in charge of the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. And he earned he earned the DFC in Vietnam. And I also have a guest scheduled who has both shoot downs and been shot down in Vietnam. And so I think it might be a little disingenuous to get them on the show and call it the air war in Vietnam. I think it's going to have to be this week it's Chuck Sweeney and this week it's Commander Willie D. Duskell. Uh, and, you know, I, I even I even cold called uh, via email uh, General Chuck Yeager's outfit and asked if he'd be willing to come on. And I'll have to call that episode on my podcast. I, I'll, he hasn't responded yet. But I may have to do it again. We'll have to keep an eye out for that one. <laughs> I will. Yeah. But but that episode is going to be Chuck Yeager. It's not going to be flying yes, supersonic. supersonic. It's going to be Chuck Yeager, <laughs> won't it? So, Vincent, a few right. more questions to wrap it up. Sure. And, uh, you want. So, do you have any hobbies? Yes, I love to fly fish. Uh, that is one of my biggest passions. I like to ride motorcycles. Uh, I like old muscle cars. I have two. And, uh, of course, I love to snow ski. Uh, and what I was about to say, of course, is, uh, you know, everyone always says, my family. Well, I don't treat my family as a hobby. They are my life. Uh, I've got three wonderful boys. Uh, if you've listened to my podcast, you hear me refer to my oldest. He's 17 years old. He's a whiz with guitars and drums. He's good with social media and, and editing. So he is my biggest resource for my podcast. I have a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old as well, all boys. So as you might imagine, our refrigerator is open quite a bit. And uh, there's a lot of roughhousing going on. And the air in the house is not what my wife would always prefer, <laughs> you under, if you understand. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite aircraft you've flown? The F-18 Hornet. One you wish you could have flown? 
Uh, realistically, or like go travel through time? Because I just really, had that question. Anything you fancy uh, back in time now? Anything? Probably a P51 Mustang. Either that or the P38 Lightning. Um, because, you know, there's not that much difference between, believe it or not, a, a Hornet and a F-14. I know some people would argue that. But for the most part, they're virtually the same. You know, a P-51 and a P-38, they are quite a bit different, especially the P-38. Definitely. Um, you have so much more to deal with with the propeller. Uh, but also, plus, just their storied histories. I think either one of those would be a lot of fun, fun to fly. And it's not too late for a P-51. I don't know if there's any P-38s out there. Yeah, um, but. Maybe if someone wants to hire me to race their P-51 up at the Reno Air Races for them, maybe I could still have a chance. You will be up there. And finally, Vincent, <laughs> do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Uh, no, I mean, it's, golly, it's it's like a part of me and, and what male doesn't get tired of talking to him, right? Just ask the poor females who have to hear about it when they're courting, right? Exactly. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I will confess this to you, Mike. Um, when I retired and I was thinking about doing this podcast, I, I, I didn't think about every day, you know, oh, you know, I used to fly jets or I want to do it again. Or it wasn't a daily thing. But a year later, which is how long it took to get this episode or this podcast off the ground, um, I find myself thinking about it much more. And I also find myself with an enthusiasm for it that is reminiscent of when I was young. Because when I was at, like I said, UC Irvine, and I would go over to El Toro and watch airplanes fly off, I just had this weird, I don't want to call it love and sound all kooky or whatever, but I just had this pit in my stomach, you know, just this feeling in my chest like, this is what I was meant to do. This is where I should be. This is what I want to do. And, and, and the funny thing is, Mike, I'll tell you this too. Before I ever flew an airplane, I would have dreams about flying, but I never got off the ground. I would dream about getting suited up. I dream about getting in the airplane. I even had one dream, and you know, this is when I was 20 or 21, of getting all the way to the runway. And I thought, all right, this time I'm going to make it. And I never got airborne. And sometime later, years later, I don't even remember the first time, but I remember having the epiphany that the night before I dreamt about going out and doing some fight and, you know, I was dog fighting with somebody and they said something weird, you know how dreams are. And then I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, I dream about flying now. And the interesting thing is that when I was not medically qualified for a year or two, I went back to the first way and never got off the ground. And then after that, I think I had one or two, I, you know, I, I don't remember most of my dreams. Um, and since then I have had a dream now that I'm retired and not flying, I've had at least still one dream where I was actually flying. So wow. without getting too cerebral here, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's my soul or spirit's way or whatever of, of full circle closure. I've done everything I wanted to do. I still love it, but I'm okay that I'm not doing it now because I, I've enjoyed it. Uh, and it's on for the next generation to do. Uh, but I've gotten mine. I hope I gave more than I took. And now I'm trying to still give, but in a different capacity. Well, Vincent, you certainly had a great career. And I just want to thank you very much for being on the show. You know what, Mike? This has been a lot of fun. I have not done one with video before, so hope I haven't scared too many people off. But it's been a lot of fun. I want to thank you for inviting me to be on your show. You're very welcome. 
Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon. Thank you.